Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset uh, NHS Clinical Lead for Mental Health. Peter, we're going to talk today about long COVID, but uh, perhaps before we talk about long COVID, we could just talk a little bit about virus infections and, and COVID in, in particular. Would that be okay? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think you and I, Andrew, were, were taught that infectious diseases, they were a bit in the past. And we, we conquered that. And, you know, there's this famous phrase, isn't there? It's just a virus. I don't think doctors will be using that phrase for a little while, do you? Absolutely not. And uh, certainly after the First World War, um, tens of millions of people died in the First World War and the conflict. But actually, the mortality from the Spanish flu that swept the globe after that was, I'm, I'm told, it was more than pe- who, the number of people who died in conflict. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that too. Absolutely. And it had long term after effects. It wasn't just people getting flu and getting over it. A lot of people had these Parkinson's type problems afterwards, didn't they? So we've known for a long time that viruses can give long term effects, whether it's the paralysis of polio. Um, so this, in a way, COVID shouldn't have been such a surprise to us as it was. No, and and just to put it in context for for everybody, there are millions of viruses, uh, many of which um, have no effect on humans, and some of which, many of which, have very minor effects. So probably the the, the nasty viruses and such as COVID are are less common. Um, I suppose we know the the big three or four from the past would be chickenpox, measles, mumps, German measles, and those are the the well known ones that 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 some of us who are of an age, Peter, might have got in our childhood. I seem well, to remember. Yes, I I certainly uh, have seen patients uh, still suffering from effects of that, and I remember when I did paediatrics, seeing a patient with uh, MMSE, which. which uh, uh, which was a complication of measles, where they were very severely affected. The other major one, I think we must uh, uh, add, Andrew, is HIV, of course, which was another new viral infection, uh, which caused a pandemic and uh, killed many people, including my cousin. Oh, I'm sorry. So turning to COVID, um, all of us who are listening and who are living in the world at the moment who uh, have been through this, but just could you just remind us what COVID is as a sort of virus? Tell us a little bit about the virus. Yeah, so it's it's SARS COVID two. It's uh, it's one of the coronaviruses, uh, and uh, as you said before, we we have a lot of viruses that really we can we can shrug off, and our, our bodies are well attuned to. And coronaviruses normally are just mild res- respiratory illnesses. Uh, but SARS, the, the fact that it's called SARS-CoV, it should be a clue because that's serious uh, uh, acute respiratory syndrome. And, and that is a very serious disease. Uh, so there's this spike protein, and that seems to be able to get it into places that other viruses can't get. So I think when, when it was first described, it was thought to be a respiratory virus and that it affected the lungs and that was it. And as we've learned more about it, we realise that it, it affects almost every part of the body you can imagine. And, and that's why it's, it gives such, uh, such strange long-term effects. So could you share with us the, sort of the, the, the common symptoms that people might have with an acute affection 
um, both the, the milder ones and the more serious ones. What sort of things would people have noticed? Yes. I remember the advice was severe, fe high fever, persistent cough, uh, and there was a third one. And then later on, they brought in um, loss of smell. That's right. And in the early stages, that wasn't known about at all. But I, I see it present in lots of different ways. Some people will get it and have no symptoms at all, but they can still get some of the, the brain fog and long COVID effects afterwards. A lot of people now, particularly with Omicron, are, are getting uh, GI effects, uh, diarrhea, uh, stomach upset, that sort of thing. And other people I've seen will have no cough or fever, but will have a really bad headache for a while. So that seems to be where it's going into the brain and giving almost an, an encephalitis type of picture. So yes, there were these classic symptoms, but it is hugely variable. And one of the things about it is that you get this acute stage where you have the fever, you're unwell in, in one of several ways that we've described, but then it kind of comes to a tipping point at about 10 days or so, where it will either then start getting better or it will get progressively worse. Thank you, Peter. And have you got any personal experience or seen any patients um, who were particularly affected that you know about? I've seen lots of patients, including uh, young people. I, I, I can think of a 32-year-old who had a clot on his lungs as a result of COVID. Uh, and sadly, older, frail patients who uh, have died. Uh, and I sit on the Learning Disabilities Review Panel, uh, and, and we've seen quite a lot of COVID deaths in people with LD. But I've also got personal experience, which I don't know if you want me to, to talk about. I, I would love you to, but you've mentioned, sadly, people have passed on. And we know that certainly in the first wave, a lot of people uh, died. And so our heart goes out, our condolences go out to anybody who has been affected by this, uh, both by by losing um, loved ones or, or colleagues or neighbours or friends. Uh, and of course, people have had great hardship economically, but we're talking more about the virus rather than the epidemic, the, the pandemic. So Peter, what was it? You, you've had COVID. What was it like? What what did it start as? And, and did you feel that it was just going to get better quickly or, or, or what? Yeah, so I've I've had a uh, true flu once um, and was sort of out of it for 24 hours, but then <laughs> was on call the next day. So got back to work the day after flu. So I thought it would be like that. And I got it right at the beginning of the pandemic, a, a couple of weeks after lockdown uh, from somebody who, who worked in a, a doctor's surgery. Um, and so I thought, OK, that's fine. Mortality looks to be one to two percent. I'm a non-smoker. I do Joe Wicks workouts. I'm a black belt in karate. I'll I'll be unwell for a week or so uh, and then just get back to normal. Uh, and if, in fact, a couple of people at work were joking, oh, well, you, you can then go out and see all our COVID patients because you'll be immune. So that's what I thought was going to happen. Yes. And, and so it was sort of um, a mixture between doctors in vulnerability and pesky little virus and we'll get over this. Absolutely. Um, and what was the reality of the situation? The reality was rather different from that. So the first 10 days or so, I just had a bit of a fever and a cough and, and that was fine. Um, but then I got to this point where suddenly everything got very, very much worse. And at that point, I couldn't get out of bed. Uh, and the feeling was that oh, as though I was going to drown. It was a feeling that I was up to my nose in water and that if the water got just that little bit higher, I, I was going to down drown and i've never ever had the feeling that i was going to die before 
that I did with COVID and several other patients I've seen had the same feeling. Gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. And what would be the physiological um, reason for that? Was it literally that you were almost going to drown? Was it that the, the, the oxygen transfer wasn't happening for some reason? Were the lungs, did they have fluid in or, or what was happening? Um, I mean, I don't know exactly. I, I later developed heart failure where the lungs do fill up with fluid. But I think at this stage, yes, as you say, it's a, a gas transfer uh, issue. And I don't know what my oxygen levels were at that acutely unwell stage, because although I've got a, a device to measure it, I wasn't well enough to, to use it. But a fortnight later, I, I checked my SATs and they were 55% which is generally not considered compatible with being alive, is it? No, it's not. 55%, I should think, of uh, for oxygen sats. Uh, uh, if you were coming in through a hospital door with those numbers, you'd be straight into ICU. Well, uh, I, I, I might be very worried about you if you were in ICU and your sats dropped that far. Ironically, when I went back to work, um, I had a... a, a a little four, a leaflet in front of me saying, if you see somebody with sats of 93% or less, admit them 999. My sats at that stage have got back up to 87%. Um, yes. Gosh. Gosh. So that must have been a very scary time for you. Extremely scary. And again, I, I, you know, this was right at the beginning. There were no experts. Nobody knew what to do. The, the advice was stay at home if you can. If you come into hospital, you'll be put on a ventilator. And the people I was speaking to uh, who, who worked in ICU said, don't do that. You you won't make it. You'll die. Stay at home and take your chances. Uh, so that's what I did. Big decisions time. And, and uh, you know, our, our, our thoughts go and, and condolences go for you. Uh, having got through that difficult first phase, was it a quick recovery back to normal energy levels and 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 clear thinking and and breathing fine or, or, or what how, how did things develop over the next few few days and weeks well again um i expected to just get back to normal and do my usual usual thing and uh discovered that that wasn't happening and and that i was got very very easily exhausted um very short of breath just going up and down stairs uh, couldn't really do anything physical and and couldn't think my the physical things were the main thing but with hindsight i realized that my my mental processes were really quite badly affected um but i was desperate to get back to work I, you know this was a time when it was all hands to the pump um so i, I went back i'm sure too early uh, because that's what we do isn't it um it's what we're used to doing but no, and a couple of months into it, I was still finding that if I climbed a, a hill, I wasn't just getting short of breath uh, at that time, but it was wiping me out for several hours afterwards and, and making me feel very, very unwell. And at that stage, uh, I read that about two thirds of people who have acute COVID have some sort of inflammation in their heart. So I uh, spoke to the the cardiologist we we both work with Tom Connell who's who's also been on this program and he said well yep come along for an echo and we'll see I'm it'll probably be fine and it wasn't fine it showed moderate to severe LV dysfunction so I had heart failure and I still have heart failure and I'm still on medication right oh thank you um so heart failure just to say is not that your heart's going to stop. It just means that the, the power of the pump is not keeping up fully with the body's needs and demands. And it often manifests as 
fluid retention either in the lungs because the left ventricle is not working hard enough or in the legs because the right ventricle is not working hard enough is that about is that a fair description absolutely and uh, we were taught it had a bad prognosis average two years from diagnosis to death um, worse than the average cancer prognosis but um, happily modern medicine has improved that so I'm, I'm guessing you you might have found some medication that's helped that considerably after our colleague Dr. Tom McConnell sort, sorted you out and saw you. Absolutely, yes. So beta blockers, ACE inhibitors um, have improved things, but it's it's not. I would say it's back to maybe eighty percent of what it was before, and and certainly I wasn't able to go back to work um, doing the hours I had previously. Thank you, Peter. So um, heart and lung issues there. Any brain fog? Any, any any other things for you before we talk about the various things that other people might have experienced? Yes, I think it, it was odd. As I say, that was kind of in the background because of the, the other physical symptoms. But, but with hindsight, I realised that my thinking was slowed considerably. And I've always loved the challenge of not knowing who's going to come through the door and dealing with difficult problems and sorting them out. And I just felt I wasn't up to to this. I couldn't work at that sort of level uh, anymore. And, you know, I'm luckier than a lot of people. I I know people who have been so badly affected that they fail a a dementia test as a result of it. And and certainly the latest biobank studies show that people who've had even mild COVID, sometimes even without symptoms, lose about 10 years of brain function. Very interesting. So thinking about long COVID, where's where's the word long COVID come from um, and what does it mean? Well, I don't, I don't want to get into the politics of this. So, um, you know, some people call it post-COVID syndrome. Some, some people call it long COVID. Uh, there, there's a bit of an argument about what the right name is. It doesn't really matter. It's just if it goes on, if symptoms are persistent for more than a few months, I, yeah, again, there are more precise definitions, but I don't want to get tied down with that, really. But there's an increasing recognition that for probably the majority of people who survive COVID, they will get ongoing symptoms and tiredness is number one. Um, but it's a huge range of other things. So breathing problems, very common. A lot of people get um, skin rashes, uh, the the brain fog that we've talked about is incredibly common, even for people who've had it mildly. But it, it looks increasingly as though coronavirus can get into almost every organ of the body. So you talked about lack of smell, um, but it can cause inflammation of the kidneys, of the uterus, of the liver, um, you know, almost any part of the body you can think of. This pesky little virus can get in and damage and cause inflammation. Interesting and 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 very sad, obviously, for everybody who's affected. I'm I'm looking on the positive side, and we'll come back to the sort of other aspects of long COVID in a minute. In a minute, if I may, I'd like to ask you a question: Why is it with whatever virus is around? And I often have thought this about flu viruses. Why is it that some people are badly affected, and some people are virtually unscathed, although they've obviously had the virus, and some people don't even know that they've had it? Mm. And, and that it, it's slightly different from one virus to another but with c- coronavirus we know that the the primary thing is increasing age 
and we know that our immune system gets weaker as as we get older. So that's the number one thing, but also metabolic health. And I guess that's why I was a bit complacent because I thought, well, I'm metabolically healthy. Um, But people, for instance, with type 2 diabetes, people who were overweight, those seem to be affected much more by acute COVID. For long COVID, it seems slightly different. So it's it's women slightly more than men, whereas the deaths were slightly more weighted uh, for, for men over women. And we don't fully understand that. We think it may be to do with, with overstimulation of the immune system. Uh, so you then get this, this so-called autoimmune process going on where the, the body fights itself. But there are lots of other theories about why people get long COVID, whether it's ongoing infection, whether it's inflammation from the virus, whether it's this autoimmunity, uh, or whether it's microclots, little clots, and there are trials going on. Because um, we certainly know that people after acute COVID, people are much more likely to get strokes, heart attacks, clots on the lungs, and, and other things like that. I'd like to be just slightly controversial here, Peter, and say that um, um, there's something that's been around for years called post-viral fatigue syndrome, uh, sorry, uh, and, and, and chronic fatigue. And it's something that a lot of doctors and a lot of lot of people in the establishment have poo-pooed for a long time. Um, I have to say, I, I never poo-pooed post-viral fatigue syndrome or, or ME uh, myself because I had mumps when I was a junior doctor working some of those um, very interestingly long hours that we did in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and, and so I was exhausted and I got mumps and, uh, you know, pesky little virus, should have tossed it off. Um, it, it, it took me three months before I got back to work and it took me three or four years before my energy level was fully right. So I, I was personally aware that, was, that, that, that pers- post-viral fatigue existed and also what I could do about it. And I, it, it pushed me into learning an awful lot about health that I would never have learned otherwise. But Although that that experience for me was the the mid eighties, um, an awful lot of a lot of the medical culture uh, has been to sort of say, oh, post viral fatigue. Well, it's it's it either doesn't exist or it's not important. I mean, whether that's a function of the fact that there are, there are very few specialists in it or it's not taught at medical school, I don't know. But I'd be interested in your thoughts on that before we before we talk more about long COVID. Mm, yes, it. it it has been very controversial, and I know a lot of people who have uh, post-viral fatigue or ME, whatever name you like to give it, feel gaslighted by healthcare professionals uh, because they're told it's all in the mind. Uh, as you say, we we know that viruses can do this. So the the other classic one is Epstein-Barr virus, uh, glandular fever, which uh, I had friends who got it in at medical school, who then had to miss a year of medical school. So these were completely fit young people who were wiped out by it. But as you say, for, for some people, it, it seems as though it goes on for years. Um, and I think the reason that we don't take it seriously is because we, we can't do a test that we can put our finger on and say, oh, this is why it is. There are theories, aren't there, about whether it's to do with the the cells not producing energy, maybe it's a mitochondrial problem. Um, but but we just we can't do a blood test and say, ah, you've got this, we'll treat it. So and when doctors don't understand things and can't treat them, the temptation is to say, well, they can't be real. 
Absolutely. You can't, you can't do a test for it and you can't see it and you look normal on the outside. So, well, it's either psychological or maybe you're even faking it, which is, uh, it's much easier sometimes to blame the victim or the messenger than it is to take the, the issue seriously. But moving on, actually, because actually, I think people have moved on a long way on chronic fatigue and, and post-viral syndrome. And certainly long COVID has, has brought it home to a huge number of people that there is a problem. Uh, inflammation aside and continued inflammation due to autoimmunity aside, I think you're right when you mention mitochondria. There's a there's there's some doctors who would say for chronic fatigue, it's mitochondria, not hypochondria, because if you starve a petrol engine of fuel, it will sputter, it won't go up hills well, it will cough and it will stall at times. And it's as though the body is being starved of, of probably of oxygen delivery and energy delivery. Um, but at a mitochondrial level, some people think that it's actually the ATP, which is the energy currency of the body, is just not being manufactured nearly as efficiently. Uh, and certainly with oxygen delivery, if there is adequate, if the mitochondria are working well and you have enough oxygen, then you burn glucose and one one molecule of gluto, glucose will, will give you 36 molecules of ATP. So that's fantastic energy exchange. If you are oxygen deficient, what happens is that um, the glucose gets uh, dealt with anaerobically and uh, gets turned into lactic acid. You get two molecules only per molecule of glucose, two molecules of ATP. And then you've got to spend much more uh, ATP in in recovering the lactic acid. So that's the that's the cramping feeling that we get in muscles when we're when we're tired or if we have poor oxygen delivery for whatever reason, uh, it comes much more quickly. And just to unpack acronyms, so ATP is adenosine triphosphate. Um, um, mitochondria for people who don't know, there's kind of the power cells, the batteries of our uh, of our cells, aren't they? They're little organelles that sit within each cell and uh, are responsible for these things, as, as, as you've described, that produce energy. Absolutely. And we have to thank our mothers because mitochondria come down the maternal line. So they're not coded for on Y chromosomes. So um, so it's, it's, it's something about that. So how does what I've just described relate to long COVID, do you think? And, how, and, and, and the phenomenon of cultural awareness or unawareness of fatigue, is that being challenged now? I hope so. And it's very interesting, as you know, I'm on Twitter and there are lots of people from the uh, the ME uh, uh, post-viral fatigue community who've, who've tied up and said, hooray, perhaps finally, you know, we're, we're sorry that you guys are suffering, but perhaps finally society will take us seriously and do research. And although there's been huge progress in terms of vaccination, I'm still shocked at how little we know about the mechanisms for long COVID. And we, we clearly need a lot more research to find out what's causing this. Is it, is it inflammation? Is it clots? Uh, is it mitochondria? And if so, what can we do about it? Because we haven't got any good treatments for long COVID a, a, apart from heart failure. Uh, are we likely to have a, a wonder drug that, um, that suddenly boosts the immune system and, and resets everything perfectly? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, I, I stopped believing in wonder drugs quite a long time ago. Um, but 
hopefully with the research, if, if that can come up with the basic idea behind it, they are starting to look at things to, to boost mitochondrial function, aren't they? Thank you. Just a sort of a couple of other questions about having COVID. If you've had COVID once and uh, you must have had the, was it, would it have been the Delta variant or yep. the, yeah. the, the variant? Does it make you immune forever and once you've had one COVID or, or, or partially immune? Um, I've seen research showing that if you've had COVID, um, you get better cellular immunity uh, yep. than with triple vaccination. So that's the, T, that's the T cell immunity. Yes, that's right. Yep. So you can get the new variants, the, the Omicron variants. You, you will still get those, but you won't get them severely. So it doesn't give you absolute immunity, but it probably gives you protection against death and serious disease and probably against the reduced uh, an increased risk of long COVID if you get reinfected. That, that's helpful. A bit like the flu virus mutates, whereas if you've had mumps once, you are highly unlikely ever to get it again. Uh, I'm hoping that's the case anyway. I don't really want it again. It was very painful at the time. I, I won't. Uh, I won't. I won't bore listeners with uh, where it was painful, but it was certainly painful around my jaw. But there were uh, uh, other places are found anyway. So, so Peter just. Thinking a little bit more about COVID, um, Delta, Omicron, and some others. Any any thoughts on the differences? Any comments you'd like to make? I think it's really hard to know, isn't it? So there was this narrative that Omicron was milder. Um, certainly, it seems to give a different picture. It gives sort of the runny nose, the classic sort of viral runny nose, cold type symptoms, which which Delta absolutely didn't in those very early stages. If you had a runny nose, it probably wasn't COVID. Uh, whereas Omicron seems to give that, seems to give much more um, gut problems, diarrhea and, and so on. And it, yes, it seems to be milder, but probably it's milder primarily because people who are getting it have been vaccinated and that's giving that protection. It gives about 80 something percent protection against hospitalisation and serious disease. So I think the problem is that it's hard to disentangle getting it when you've had a vaccination from getting this new strain. Mm. Interesting. And for you personally and for others, um, I'm just going to depart slightly first onto my mumps, which I know is not the same, but what it did for me is it, it, is it taught me to investigate and it taught me not to take health for granted and it taught me to try and learn all I could about how to keep my health higher. And I know you're black belt at uh, judo, is it? Karate. Karate, I'm sorry. Karate. Uh, and and uh, I've certainly personally found great benefit from a number of health practices, which I would not have learned if I hadn't had a, an illness that, that stopped me taking my health for granted. Do you, do you think it's, it's made any difference to your attitude to health or to other people's that you know? Well, it's made me realise that um, diseases don't just happen to this other group of patient, people called patients uh, and not to uh, those of us who happen to be called doctors. And I'd always thought of myself as invulnerable. Um, it's made me carpe diem, seize the day, appreciate each day of life, appreciate being able to, to do that most basic thing, breathe. Um, so it, it certainly changed my perspective on making the most of each day. Uh, and yes, being aware of things we can do to help ourselves to be more healthy in terms of diet and exercise and these other things. Thank you. And as we draw towards the end, um, just one question about 
children, although fortunately they seem to be relatively unaffected by by COVID. Um, any thoughts on or research on why this could be the case? Um, what implications are there are for the future? Because it looks as though we're going to be living with COVID for some time yet. Yes, and sadly, there there have been quite a few cases of long COVID in children. So they're still susceptible to that. But death's incredibly rare at that age. And that, again, seems to be that their immune system is fresh and primed and, and all ready to go. Uh, which is why mumps as a child tends to be a mild illness, whereas as an adult, it's a much more severe one. But there have then been these interesting cases, sadly, of, of uh, an increase in deaths from hepatitis. And that seems to be because we've all isolated. So children aren't being exposed to the viruses in the way that they were. And that means that their immune system isn't primed and ready to go in quite the same way. Interesting. Thank you. And just one last question about um, any mental effects. Obviously, Peter, for you, having uh, COVID and, and goodness knows what your oxygen saturations were, but when, if they were 55 when you were getting better, um, you, you, know, you, must have, you must have felt very frightened. Um, is there any knowledge or research about people having severe COVID being, either, being more susceptible to PTSD or anxiety depression, either at the time, perhaps because of a direct effect of the virus, or or, or afterwards? Yes, there's been a lot of research on that, and, and that could be another half-hour chat in itself. We, we know that mental health um, problems have increased by about a third, uh, and that's partly due to lockdown, the social effects, the financial effects, and so on. But there seems to be an increase in anxiety and depression, as well as a, a tendency to dementia, amongst people who've had COVID. And that's probably due to the direct inflammatory effects on the brain. And certainly personally, I, I can definitely attest to the PTSD element that if I say, go to sleep and my head goes into the pillow and I can't breathe, I get incredibly panicky. Uh, so definitely PTSD as well. And for people who've been hospitalized, hospitalized on ventilators, that's even more the case, I'm afraid. They they have even higher mental health effects. Thank you. And there will be more research and there are services being rolled out around the country at, at varying rates to, to help people with long COVID. So we, we hope things will look better forwards as we understand it more uh, and as, as we grow services to help with people. Absolutely. There are long COVID clinics now uh, throughout the country. They don't have all the answers, but they can usually... Uh, send you to people who who can help, um, but there's not a there's not a magic bullet. There's not a, a simple solution. Uh, and my advice to anyone in in my situation would be again be positive, make the most of each day. We are survivors. We're the lucky ones. We've come through this. We may be a bit damaged, but you know that's what life does to you. GPs in Somerset. So if you're a Somerset patient, you can be referred to the Somerset COVID-19 recovery services, and you'll find that on the NHS Somerset website uh, under health, health, local services and coronavirus COVID-19 recovery services. So please feel free to search that uh, and find a referral route for yourself if you'd like to be referred. It's a pleasure to be with you, Peter, to, to talk about this. Thank you, listeners, everybody, for, for coming along and joining us. And we hope you found this interesting. And go well until the next episode. Thank you very much, Andrew. For It's interesting being on the other side of the chair, as it were. 
And if people are interested, um, I'm on Twitter. They're welcome to contact me and uh, I can put them in touch with the relevant groups and uh, happy to give any advice I can to people. Thank you very much. And thank you too to our producer, David, um, who was actually off with COVID when we were due to record this first time around. Thank you. Go well, everyone. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group. 